If your Bibles keep those open, John 6, thank you, Lauren, for doing that. Uh, her brother Logan was asked to do it, and he was too big a chicken. So uh, make sure you mention that to him if you see him. Um, but Lauren braved her fears and was up here, so I appreciate that. There's one brave person in the Schold family, I guess. So, um, Hi, Logan. <laughs> Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you uh, just for today. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, Lord, we just thank you for your love. And um, Lord, as we, as we study your word, as we are your church this morning, as we, we come with, uh, with so many baggages of life um, from recent days, so many, uh, so many struggles, so many troubles, even, even good times, God, that can distract us from what you want to do in our midst today. And so we just pray that you'd remove those now. Lord, that you'd have your way in this room, that you'd have your way in us, and that you'd be exalted by everything that's done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been around the sport of football my entire life. Uh, I grew up in Indiana, and I was told in Indiana basketball is supposed to be your favorite sport, but it's not. It's not even my second favorite sport. All right, I love baseball, and football's always just been a part of me. I love dissecting the sport. I love being around it. I love just being a part of it. This was surely uh, created in me by the fact that my father was a football coach. So from even a young age, I got to experience practices, locker rooms, film sessions that other people don't always see. But you know what I haven't done much of actually myself? I haven't actually played much football. And I know why. I can tell you exactly why. Okay? It was, there was a day uh, in sixth grade football, the Putnam County Football League. We were playing at South Putnam High School. And on this team, I was playing defensive end. And there was a running play that came my way. And I shed the guy blocking me. And all I saw was just open grass between me and the runner. And this was going to be my play. Right? I was going to bring this guy down for a loss. I was going to turn him in. I mean, I already had, I was, I was going to lead the highlights in the news that night. Right? And just before I got to him, I'm getting ready to tackle this guy. Coming into my view from the left looked like what appeared to be a full-grown man who had somehow stuffed himself into a kid's uniform. I mean, in, in this league, you could only play if you were in fourth through sixth grade. So, so my guess is this guy had flunked 10, 11 times in elementary uh, because all of a sudden I was getting creamed by a 22-year-old, right? And this kid hit me so hard, the very first thing that hit the ground was the back of my helmet, right? As my feet and my head just flipped positions like that. And I remember just laying there on the ground, and, and, and for a while, everything was black. I had no vision, right? And then when it came back, all I saw were those stars that you see. I had the worst headache I can remember. And so they, they get me to the sidelines. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get my bearings back. I'm trying to remember who I am, what am I doing. And I remember sometime later in the second half, coach looked at me and said, Parks, you, you want to go back in? And I, I waved him off, telling him, my, man, my head's still pounding, coach. And it, that was true, but what I was thinking was this. He's still out there. Right, I, I don't know where he is. I didn't know where he was the first time, but he, but he found me. And the second time, all I consume is he's going to carry my head off as a trophy this time, right? And I know it's soft, right? But that was the day I realized you could love a sport without really having a passion for playing it. But you know what the thing is about that? I, if I'm being honest, I still kind of regret that decision. Because at some point later on in life, I realized you just can't hide. Right, if, all, if all you ever did in life was to run away from the chance of being blindsided, you never do anything of worth in this life. Because to love, to live, to try is to take on the risk of being hurt. It's to take on the risk of getting creamed, of failing. Right? And as try as you might, things come this life, things that you were never prepared for. In Matthew 7, Jesus calls these storms. Uh, back in December, Crin's mom 
came to, to visit her and the girls for a few days. And I remember sitting down with her and we looked at her schedule trying to figure out when was, when was the best time for her to go home. And we settled on Tuesday morning because it worked with her schedule. And, and the main reason was because it had the best forecast of any day that week. Nice and clear. Supposed to be sunny, right? We woke up that Tuesday, opened the curtains, and all we saw were white. Roads are just covered in snow. So I get online, I check there are more than 30 accidents on the Interstate 70 between here and Indianapolis alone. But she had to go back. She had a terrible day of travel because that's life. You can plan, you can choose, you can think there's nothing but open grass and open roads in front of you, and then something comes you never saw coming. And I love tracking what Jesus is doing with his disciples here in this chapter, John 6, that we've been studying. We know from the other Gospels that right before John 6, Jesus sends his disciples in groups of two out to preach in the Galilean countryside. It was the first time that they would ever go off without him. First time they went out solo, if you will. And they experienced a lot of success and were excited. And when they are rejoined with Jesus, and in their excitement, he presents them with this challenge of, of feeding this crowd of thousands who's been following him for days. And we watch as they just fail that challenge. They show little to no faith in Jesus. They declare it to be impossible. And then they watch Jesus feed 5,000 people with just one boy's lunch. They see God perform this amazing miracle. And so in just a short time, a couple of days, they've, they felt nervous and intimidated. Then they experience great success. Then they fail a test. And then they see God doing something miraculous. It's the up and down. It's the ebbs and flows that we experience in this life. Well, listen, just... Just two weeks ago, I had an entire week filled with sunshine and rest and joy and worship concerts and deepening friendships and spiritual renewal. This last week was marked by pain and illness and chaos and grief. The mistake I made was I didn't die. That's it, right? Because life happens. This is the ebb and flow of life. The disciples being with Jesus didn't stop life from happening for them. Being a follower of Jesus for us doesn't stop life happening to us. The difference that we will see today is that he's there. The section that we just read for you, that Lauren just read for you, right after the miracle of feeding the 5,000, Jesus will knowingly send his disciples into a storm. Now, to help us understand why, he's going, I want you to look with me again at a couple verses that we read last week, but they give us some context. John 6, jump back to verse 14. It says this. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come to the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. So once this crowd right, realized the amazing miracles that Jesus pulled off, they come to a conclusion. When they say here in John 6, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Here's what that means. Surely Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you've been with us for some time, you know this because we've mentioned this to you before. But one of the tensions that we always find in the Gospels is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He's, he was sent from heaven. He's God in human form. But the tension exists because what he came to do was vastly different from what everyone else expected Messiah to do. The Jewish people had taken, on, taken this promise of a deliverer, of a Messiah, and they'd come to believe the Messiah would come and establish, uh, it would come and be an earthly king, that he would establish Israel as the greatest nation on earth. He would make Israel great again, Right? He would make them powerful, prosperous, at peace. That's why it says in verse 15, Jesus knew they intended to make him a king by force. They're going to start a revolution right here. And Jesus has no interest in that. 
Mark tells us this story in his gospel as well, and he includes some key details that I want us to hear today because I think they help us understand the story. So I've got a couple options where you can turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6. If you're tired this morning and feel lazy, we'll throw it up on the screens for you. Um, so you can just do whatever you want there. But Mark chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 45. Because Mark fills in a few more of the gaps for us. Mark 6, 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. He was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed to the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the lows. Their hearts were hardened. So Mark tells us this story that John is telling us in 6, and he tells us that immediately, or immediately Jesus sends his disciples to the boats. What he's doing here is he's rescuing them. He's getting them out of there. And here's why. The disciples had the same incorrect view of the Messiah that everyone else did. That's why when you read in other Gospels, why when Jesus talks about going to the cross and dying, Peter gets angry and rebukes Jesus and tells him, no, that's never going to happen. This is why James and John's mother comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to grant her sons the places of honor on his right and his left when he initiates his kingdom. You see, one of the sweetest deals ever for Jesus' disciples would have been for Jesus the Messiah to become a powerful earthly king. Because they would have been the inner circle. They'd have made up the cabinet. Peter would have been second in command. James and John, close advisors. Jesus, Judas would have been a royal treasurer. The disciples could have easily been tempted to get caught up in the fervor of the crowd and try to make Jesus a king as well. They could have easily been tempted to let their mind drift and wonder what, what that would be like for them. So Jesus runs them off immediately into the boats. Remember, he knows the future. He knows they're going to get on those boats and he's, they're going to head straight into a storm. But he also knows he did not come to be an earthly king. He came to establish God's kingdom by dying on the cross for our sins. And he knows that for these men that he loves and he's mentoring, it is far better for them to be in a storm and within the will of God than it is to be outside the will of God and enjoying a season of prosperity. See, the real danger isn't the storm. The real danger is the intentions of the crowd and how it could tempt them to deviate from his father's will. And so he gets them out of there. And he goes away to be alone and pray. And I love the example that Jesus sets for us there. That when faced with temptation, he runs to the Father. Listen, you're a sinner. I hope that's not news to you, right? You're going to be tempted to sin. But when, you, when you're faced with that pull of sin, the, the desire of something that we know is wrong, but we want to do it, we cannot hide from God. We cannot conceal from him what we're thinking. He knows anyways. The best move is just take that to him. Just be honest with him, to reconnect with him, be realigned to his will. This crowd wanted Jesus to bypass the cross and go straight to becoming a king. This is what Satan had tempted him with in the desert earlier. But instead of hearing them, right, instead of pondering what they may be saying, instead of letting his mind dwell on it, Jesus retreats and goes to the Father in prayer. What a great example. 
And while Jesus is up on the mountainside praying, he can see out over this sea by Bethsaida. And he prays until the fourth watch of the night is what the Greek says. They were just sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. And he's looking out over the water and he sees his disciples still aren't on the other side. This lake wasn't huge. It was, only, it was about seven miles across. And they've made it about three and a half. Okay, and there's only one explanation for this because the men in the boat aren't rookies. Their experience, a handful of them were fishermen before they left everything to follow Jesus. So they'd be quite comfortable and very capable out on the waters. But hours have passed since they got in the boat. They should have been all the way across by now. That's not the way it's going. It's almost dawn. They've been rowing all night and getting nowhere. And we're told that they're in trouble because the storm has come. The Bible says it comes directly against them. It's not coming from the side. It's coming directly at them. And the wind has whipped up some big waves. And the storm is doing everything it can to hinder them and slow them and maybe even begin to sink them. And the response of these 12 men is a fitting picture of a tendency of the human heart when storms come. Because when things come our way that we, that we don't want and things, we face things that we wouldn't have chosen, often what we're tempted to do is just double down our own self-sufficiency. Here's what I'm going to do in response is I'm going to row even harder. Right? I'm going to take this thing head on. I'm going I'm to fix this. I'm going to figure this problem out. I got the strength that I need within myself. I've got this. And disciples use all their strength and all their expertise and all their experience in the season. What does it get them? They strain and they struggle and they row all night and they're not even halfway there. Because every now and then we discover we are facing something we can't fix, something that's beyond us, something that's, yes, bigger than us. And we've told you this before. It's not weakness to admit that what you're facing is bigger than you. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. And I want you to see that as long as the disciples were in that boat without Jesus, they were rowing and straining and working and being completely defeated. And I also want you to take notes of the juxtaposition we're given here in both Mark and John. Because on one hand, you have 12 really fit, capable, strong men, a portion of which are experienced in the seas. And they're given everything they have and the waves and the wind are winning. On the other hand, you have Jesus who's like, I'm going to take a walk. And seriously, he looks around and he's like, it's a nice night for a stroll. And he just goes for a walk because the storm doesn't phase him. Because the wind that, that has brought the boat to a standstill can't slow him down because the laws of physics that say you should sink and water don't matter to him because the waves and water that are threatening to sink the boat have no effect on him at all. He's just going for a walk. And, and, and we're told he's, he's going to pass right by them. Listen, it's, it's, this is comical. You should laugh when you read it. It's, it's supposed to be a funny story. Imagine these men taking turns rowing. They're exhausted. They're dripping in sweat. And Jesus is walking by. What's up, fellas? Just, he's just going right on by. And it gets better. Right? The disciples get scared thinking they're going to see a ghost. This is a comedy. And then he steps into their boat. And when he does, the wind ceases and the storm stops and the wave settles. And get this, John tells us that when Jesus steps in the boat, not only does the storm stop, but immediately the boat reaches the shore. Well, now he's just showing off. Right? There's no straining. There's no effort. There's no work here on Jesus' part. He just took a walk and stepped into a boat and the storm fled him. And the reaction of his disciples is one of sheer amazement. Because somehow, their human sinful minds are so depraved that some way, Mark tells us, their hearts were so hard, they didn't even recall or understand what he had done earlier that day. Somehow they'd forgotten that they're dealing with someone who had miraculous, unending power. Somehow they lost sight in just a matter of hours who Jesus is. 
And what I think happened was this. The storm had become bigger to them than Jesus. Because Jesus is back on shore. He's off doing his thing, but the storm is right here in their face. It's a storm that's blowing into their face. It's a storm that's making their life difficult. It's a storm that's filling that boat with water. And so when they try to face the storm by their own power, instead of calling on him to help, the storm gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And in their minds, Jesus gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And they temporarily forgot that he just fed 5,000 people with enough food to feed one. They temporarily forgot about his power. They forgot what he's capable of. And it's important, church, that we don't forget Life's hard enough if you remember. We cannot forget who Jesus is. Cannot forget the capabilities of our God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, we're told in Ephesians. We cannot forget that he's the one who holds all creation together. Think about, I mean, just think about this one day that we've been studying the last two weeks. Jesus has a crowd of thousands been following him. He's been healing their sick and teaching them, and, and he feeds them this 5,000 plus with enough food to feed one. He then is, 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 they try to make him king, and he rescues his disciples and gets them out of there, and he dismisses the crowd. He won't have it, and he, and he goes up to pray to the Father, and then he walks on water. He tells the storm to quit, and it quits, and he transports a boat three and a half miles in an instant, and that's just a Tuesday for him. Right? He's just showing his disciples, he's showing us that his power knows no bounds. He's displayed that he's the supreme ruler over all creation. He can manipulate it and move it as he chooses to do so. And he is bigger, so much bigger than anything you're facing today. So we can't forget, we must know and believe that there are no hopeless circumstances, not with our God. Not with a God who can show up in a moment and calm the storm, who can appear in an instant and fix everything. Not with a God who can touch and heal and reconcile. He's not bound by any limitation we're bound by. Because he's the God of the universe and his potential is so much greater than anything you face. And that comforts me this morning. It really does. But if we're going to be truthful studiers of the word, if we're going to be honest this morning, then we at least have to ask the question, what do we do with it when he doesn't do that? We're told in the Bible that in the beginning there was a vast expanse of darkness and God spoke and when he did light and life, all the universe just came into being. Just by the effortless work of his divine endless power, all of creation was brought into existence. And if you keep reading the Bible, you'll see that power on display through the lives of humans again and again. Moses striking the ground with a staff and the Nile turns to blood. The Red Sea parts. The rocks bring forth water. Elijah calls down fire from heaven and it burns up everything on the altar in Mount Carmel. Elisha lays on the widow's son and he's brought back to life. Ramps up even more when Jesus comes on the scene. Where he went, water turns to wine. Those lame and crippled from birth leap and dance. The mute sing and the deaf hear. There's a woman who fights through a crowd and just to touch the edge of his clothes and she's immediately healed of a disease that no physician had been able to help her with. Storms cease, demons flee, illnesses vanish, all the sound of his voice, Jairus' daughter, a widow's only son, Lazarus, are all called back from the grave. And in his greatest act, Jesus walks out of his own grave. And then he gives his followers the Holy Spirit and acts, and immediately they start doing the same things. See, Peter and John heal a crippled man from birth. Paul cast out demons and healed the sick. Acts 5 tells us that people from all over came to see Peter to be healed of various diseases. And sometimes all it took was just his shadow to cross them. 
See, the Bible from the very first sentence to the very last has running through its pages story after story after story of God's miraculous, stunning, terrifying, awesome power. And these stories are wondrous and they are incredible and they are true and they are not the point of the Bible. Not even close. In fact, if we make them the point of the Bible, we can be very harmful to people. Their very existence can cause anguish in the hearts and minds of believers when life doesn't go as planned. Because you make those the point of the Bible, what happens when you pray for a miracle and it doesn't come for you? What happens when you call out to God and you beg him to move and it seems like nothing changes, nothing happens? What happens when the doctors give you a really bad report, and, but you keep the faith and you keep praying and you pray for a miracle, then every single thing the doctors say is going to happen, happens anyways. Are we to somehow believe that God has turned his back on us? Are we to conclude that God has somehow refused to answer our prayers? See, the truest test of faith is not how we respond when God moves from heaven in amazing power and does something wondrous in our lives, which he does from time to time. The truest test of faith is how we respond when it seems as if all of heaven is silent to us. What do we do when we call on his power and nothing in our circumstances changes? What do we do when we pray and the answer is definitely not what we asked for? What do we do when there's no more tears to cry and all that remains is this nightmarish emptiness and still you wonder, where are you, God? See, one of the things I love about the word of God is that it's so trustworthy. And it's trustworthy because it reveals to us who God is and it prepares us for everything we're going to have to face in this life because the Bible isn't just full of stories about God's miraculous power. It's also full of stories of people wondering why God isn't displaying that power in their life. There's chapter after chapter in the book of Job, of Job wondering aloud, God, when are you going to move and come to my aid? Jeremiah had the least successful, most frustrating ministry ever, and God makes sure to include his story in the Bible, and then he gives him a second book in the Bible called Lamentations, which is all it is is just a record of Jeremiah's laments, his grieving, his expressions of frustration as to how terrible things are going. It's in the Bible. 150 psalms, more than 50, more than a third are just psalms of lament. Psalms where David and others pour out their hearts to God wondering, why aren't you doing anything? Psalm 10, oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Psalm 13, how long, oh Lord? Are you going to forget me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I call and groan to you for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice and I find no relief. That's in the Bible too. See, we may never understand why in some situations he moves miraculously and does something wonders. And in others, he withholds the fullness of his power on the side of heaven. But listen to me, the Bible's clear about this. Not one time are we told that all our prayers will get answered in the way we want. Not one single time are we told that God will move immediately when we ask him to. I, I want you to notice something about this story. Even in this miracle story, right, there was a passage of time where Jesus just waited, wasn't there? Disciples are facing this storm head on. He had the power to stop it. He clearly displays that later. But he let them row and he let them struggle and he let them bear it. Because he's calling the shots. 
And he has a greater good in mind. Not once in the Bible are we told that we can direct God. And we are told that his ways are above our ways. We are told that he sees and knows more than we can see or know. And we are told that his power never stops working. He will bring good out of everything and he will always be with us. Do not miss the incredible promises in the story because of the flashiness of the miracle. Did you see the promises? This is what we were told. He saw Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Listen, to those of us in our midst today facing a storm, know this, he sees you. He's not ignorant. He's not distant. He has not turned his back on you. He sees you. He knows and he has a response. Because when Jesus saw them, he pursued them. He moved towards them. He closed the gap between the disciples and himself. He, what he did was he inserted himself into the storm. You need to know that whatever you're facing, he not only sees you, but he's right there. He's with you in this. He has not left you. He will not ever forsake you. He's right there with you. And I don't want you to miss today what Jesus first offers the disciples. Because what he offers first is what's best. What he offered the disciples first is the thing that carries us today every time. The calming of the storm, the instant miracle. Sometimes we get those, sometimes we don't. But what's always true is when he looks at these men and tells them, it's I, do not be afraid. This came before the winds died down. This came before the circumstances were changed. This came before anything, anything was different. He leads off with this, I'm here guys, don't be afraid. And what we've got to learn, what we have to learn, is that that promise is greater than all the miraculous stuff you see in this chapter. Because that promise actually goes with us. That promise is guaranteed. Deuteronomy 31 tells us it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear to be dismayed. Joshua 1, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10, God says, do not be afraid for I am with you. Do not be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you up with my victorious right hand. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Psalm 34.18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Again and again and again we are told that in the midst of the storm, right in the midst of the trial, in the midst of our worst moments, what we find when we hit rock bottom is that our God is right there with us. Right in the middle of the chaos, while you're being tossed about, while everything is a mess, Jesus has inserted himself into your storm. He will be with you. He will go ahead of you. He will live in us. Do you know what the greatest prize of Christianity is? It's not that your sins are forgiven. That's pretty sweet, don't, don't get me wrong. It's not even that you get an eternal life in heaven. But that's beyond wonderful. The greatest prize in Christianity is that we get Jesus. That I get to be in his presence forever when I die, but I also get him now. And so when things are good, I can celebrate with him and thank him. And when things are bad, he, he's right there with me forever. I'm his and he's mine. And what the follower of Christ discovers as they go through this life, as they face these storms, what they come to realize is that Jesus is enough. He's enough. When everything else falls away, when there's nothing left to cling on to, you discover he's enough. I was playing Little League Baseball in this little Indiana town called Bellevue. It was among the happiest times of my sporting life, probably because no 22-year-olds were blindsiding me as I rounded first base. 
Our team, this year our team was loaded, right? Uh, we had a coach named Bruce Dorsett. Bruce is one of those guys that rubbed people the wrong way. A lot of people didn't like him. I understood that. But I loved Bruce. I always loved the guy because he wasn't ever afraid of just laying into me. But it was never unfair. It was always when I'd done something that deserved correction. And I remember this play in the championship game one year that I got chewed out pretty good. Okay, I hit a ground ball to the left side of the infield, and the opposing team shortstop, he made this incredible play. And he dove to his right, he, he secured the ball in the glove, he hopped to his feet real fast, he fired across the diamond, the ball just barely beat me to first and I was out. And I can tell you all of that because as I was running down the first baseline, I watched him do all this. Right, some of you already know, you've played baseball, right? Bruce Dorsett had a rule. He had a rule, okay, that everyone who played on this team knew this rule. And he taught us this rule again and again and again and again. Every practice we had to recite it back to him, we all knew it. The rule was this, when you hit a ground ball, you do not watch it. Don't, because what you do is you fix your eyes on first base. You run as hard as you can toward that bag. Because when you're not looking at where you're going, what that does is you go slower and increases the chances you'll be out. And I hadn't looked at first at all. But the second I got the first, Bruce got my attention. I thought he was in the dugout. I didn't even know where he came from. But all of a sudden, he was right there, okay? And he has this pretty intense eye contact with me. He's reminding me of this rule at a volume that everyone in the ballpark could hear. And he was right. I probably would have been safe. And I think about that experience a lot whenever I read in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, when we're told that we are to run the race that is marked out for us. And in doing so, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Because answers to prayer, miracles that God does in our lives, gifts that he gives us, they, are never, they never safeguard us from spiritual amnesia. These disciples had just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with just a little food, not weeks before, not months before, hours before. And all it took was a storm. And Mark tells us they simply forgot Church, hear me on this. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to set our hearts and our devotion, our adoration on him. We need to stay aware of who he is. We need to remind ourselves of what he's done in our lives. We must fight to remember. And if you're in the midst of a storm right now, the waves just keep coming, this thing's blindsided you, this hurts, then you're facing a temptation in this to question and to wonder where your miracle is or wonder what, what he's up to, why isn't he moving? And I want you to see that at no point in this story were the disciples outside of Jesus' view. He saw them the entire time. Even before he moved to them, he was praying for them. Even as they struggled, his offer to them was this, I'm here, guys. Don't be afraid. And there may be a miracle coming your way. And man, when it does, as a church, we're going to celebrate with you. We'll, we'll be amazed with you at God's goodness and grace to you. We'll worship God together with you. And in this storm, you may never get the answers you're praying for or asking for. And if that happens, he doesn't ever promise he will tell you why or even that you could understand if he did. But he promises that he'll go through the storm with you, that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you, that he's with you right now. And in that, we will be amazed at the goodness and grace of God to you. And as a church, we will worship God together with you. Fix your eyes on Jesus this morning, our great shepherd. I love, I love the 23rd Psalm. And I have a feeling that John had it in mind when he wrote this chapter. That the Lord is my shepherd, I shall 
not want. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. Have you noticed that in this chapter? Jesus brings the crowd to where there's plenty of green pasture and he feeds them. He moves to his disciples in the storm and he brings them still waters. He is embodying the perfect shepherd. Our shepherd is leading us today and we lack nothing. We lack nothing not because our circumstances will change or because we'll get a miracle. We lack nothing because he refreshes our souls. We've already seen in John that he can turn water into wine. He can heal a boy without even going to the house. He can feed thousands. He can walk on water and cause a storm to flee. But the greatest miracle greatest hope, greater than all that that we've discovered in John is when he says this, it is I, do not be afraid. Fix your eyes on Jesus, a cling to the promise of his presence, dive even deeper into him and discover anew that he is the great prize of our faith. It's not what he can do, it's him. Let's pray. Father, you can calm the waters in an instant. You can bring a miracle without effort. And you can withhold that power for reasons that we may never understand. But God, greater than all this is this promise of your presence that you will never leave us and never forsake us. And so, Lord, whether life's been really good recently... If that's the case, then may we, may we just walk with you today, having our eyes fixed on Jesus, just with gratitude and joy at the grace and goodness that you have brought to our life. But God, for those who are facing a storm right now, something that something they never saw coming, God, I pray that they would walk today with their eyes fixed on Jesus. They would be amazed at the comforting presence of him, that they would be blown away at at his goodness and grace in their life. Lord, it's, it's astounding that we get you. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve your presence. We don't deserve your promise, but you give it to us anyways. So may we all cling to it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.